Hi, folks. On this episode of the Plug in America show, I chat with John Volker of GreenCarReports.com, and we discuss EV market penetration, the new Chevy Volt, the upcoming Tesla Model 3, DC fast charging, the emerging plug-in vehicle policy landscape under the new administration, and much more. But first, please consider signing up for the Plug in America newsletter. It's free. Or joining or donating to us by visiting pluginamerica.org today. And we appreciate your kind support. Also, please be sure to visit pluginamerica.org and click the Press Room and Plug in America show tabs for the show notes and links to this episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Plug in America show. I'm your host, Bob Tregillis. Joining us today is one of my main go-to people on all things plug-in electric vehicles, John Volker. John is the editor-in-chief of GreenCarReports.com. If you consume any media content on EVs from any source, you've likely run into John's work as he's been interviewed widely and has contributed content to numerous publications. He has also held other editorial jobs, including This Old House, Psychology Today, Budget Living, and many more. And John holds a degree in industrial engineering from Stanford University. Welcome back to the Plug in America show, John. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Cool. Yeah, it's been a while. I think it's been a couple of years since I, well, I took kind of a year off of producing shows and we're back at it now. But anyway, let's hop right into it. As many recall, eight years ago, after the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, there was a goal, and I quote from the DOE website, Department of Energy website, of putting 1 million plug-in hybrid vehicles on the road by 2015. Of course, as many of us know, that goal was missed by about a half. So uh, how much closer are we to that million-car goal now, two years later in 2017, John? Well, we're somewhere around uh, 600,000. The numbers vary a little bit because, unfortunately, Tesla doesn't report deliveries in the same way that every other maker does, which is to say broken down by country and by month. And with the Model S being one of the top-selling plug-in cars, that skews the numbers a little bit. So you have to use various types of estimates or back-figure it and so forth. Right. But, and also, uh, let me also ask you on Tesla, um, do we have any sense of how many have been sold domestically here in the United States versus how many have been shipped overseas or to Canada? Um, the sense is that we're around 100,000, give or take 10,000. Um, there are a variety of figures out there from various websites that attempt to calculate or estimate, get data from other places, including uh, DMV registrations and mm -hmm. so on. But it's thought that over half the cars that Tesla has made have been sold in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and the balance in the entire rest of the world. Cool. Then, of course, still, even with uh, today's numbers, which we'll let you talk about, I guess that's still we're still slightly less than 1% of sales in the EVs in, in the market. That's correct. And I think I tend to look at the progress in the last couple of years I look at a month like January 2015 when we sold a little bit more than 6,000 
plug-in electric cars, both battery electrics and plug-in hybrids. And then I fast forward to a month like last December, where we sold more than twice that number. So the curve in the last two years is up. 2015 was actually a slight dip from 2014, but then 2016 came roaring back and we expect to see uh, higher volume coming in. And I think the car that people will really watch for almost all of this year is the Chevy Bolt EV. That's Bolt V because it's the first mass price battery electric car with a range of over 200 miles. The only one on the market that doesn't say Tesla. (laughs) Uh, And there seems to be some chance that if sales grow, as I think advocates hope they will, uh, that it could in fact equal or better the all-time record for any car with a plug in the U.S. market, which was 30,000 units of the Nissan Leaf in 2014. Okay. Um, but I wanted to back up for a minute with the overall sales through comparing 2016. How did plug-in electric cars, did they actually ramp up their sales when compared to ICE vehicles? Yes, because the totals for 2016 and 2015 for the vehicle market in the U.S. overall were only 100,000 or so apart. I think if I remember it was 17.4 and 17.5 million vehicles, something like that. Whereas the plug-in vehicles gained uh, went more or less from 120,000 or so to a number more like 150 or 160,000. Okay. And so cool. I don't actually have my chart in front of me and I should have, which oh, I apologize. Oh, that's fine. But, no. um, uh, Park, nobody's yeah, going to remember the figures, just want to get a sense of, you know, how they've been comparing. So then as a percentage plug-in. of sales, they've increased then year over year. Exactly. Year over year, plug-ins grew substantially, whereas the overall vehicle market stayed all but flat. Right. Okay. Now let's jump into the Chevy Bolt. That's Bolt with a B, which is a battery electric vehicle, as opposed to the Chevy Volt, which is a range extended electric vehicle. So that's been, they've been delivering that since December, I think, maybe. That's right. It's been uh, delivered for about six weeks, predominantly in California and Oregon. Mm -hmm. And we were actually proud at Green Car Reports to be able to publish the full state-by-state rollout schedule for the Bolt EV across all 50 U.S. states. They are opening up ordering for the car by dealers about three months before the cars start to arrive on transporters in those states. And so the last chunk of states where you can order a Bolt EV will open up in July, and those cars will start arriving at the dealers in September. Uh, ironically, including in that very, very, very last batch of states, Michigan, which is GM's home state. But, uh, <laughs> That's interesting. California oh. always goes to the top of the list. How they sort out the other states is is closely held. <laughs> well, I noticed Nevada is way down at the bottom again. But anyway, in several of your articles talking about uh, the Bolt and sales and so forth, you suggest that Chevy is interested in selling unit, you know, as far as how many units they're willing to produce and willing to sell and, and how they might change incentive structures and stuff. So why don't you talk a little bit about that and what you're trying to get at with that? 
Sure. There have been there have been lots and lots and lots of tea leaves read and interpreted with a variety of uh, of uh, meanings attributed to not very much information. We know from six years ago when the Volt with a V went on sale, uh, some high end GM executives made some predictions about volume that did not come true. They learned their lesson and GM now really doesn't talk about volumes. So there have been a number of sort of rumors and fractional information that's been published. All GM has actually said is we are able to build and deliver as many Bolt EVs as the market demands, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I think 30,000 is probably a good bogey for the first year because that is that Nissan Leaf record. The question mm-hmm. is really, how many is GM willing to sell? Because there are a lot of factors playing into it. The company wants to be seen as an electric car pioneer, as it was 20 years ago with the EV1. And certainly the Bolt EV now delivering, now people are driving them and buying them, is a huge advance on what's come before which is battery electric vehicles with ranges of 62 to 124 miles, unless you're talking about cars that start at $70,000. So a car with a 238-mile range is just a gigantic leap Mm -hmm. over one with 124 miles of range. And clearly, people know that, and they've been waiting for the car. question is, how much money does GM lose on each one? Because... Uh, batteries are less expensive than they were, and they've come down faster in cost than many people predicted, but they're still very expensive. That's a five-figure battery pack underneath the floor pan of your Bolt EV, right? Yeah, so how many kilowatt hours is it? It's a 60-kilowatt-hour battery. Mm-hmm. And the Leaf has a what size? The Leaf uh, started with a 24-kilowatt-hour battery and now has a 30-kilowatt-hour battery, half okay. the size of the Volt from which it gets 107 miles of rated range. Uh, the right. Bolt is a little bit more efficient uh, and most likely uses newer cells. So it's widely expected that GM is losing money on every Bolt EV that it sells. That's what Toyota did with its first generation of the Prius. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question is, how much money is GM willing to lose and what number of Bolt EVs does that translate into? Because as the old saying goes, it doesn't work to lose money on everyone you sell, but make it up in volume. Right. Well, but also what's interesting, I mean, as you've mentioned, there's a lot of different dynamics at play here. And of course, the Chevy is first to the market with this now, I guess we could call a mid-range EV, battery electric EV. So, you know, and we have the Model 3, the Tesla Model 3 that we're told is supposed to be delivered beginning in the second half sometime in the second half of this year, which will be a close competitor. Uh, So why don't you do a little bit of compare and contrast? And of course, you know, the Chevy Bolt is coming from a major automaker and Tesla is still in the startup phase, I guess. It's, I mean, it's somewhere in there. It's still quite young. So, I mean, this Bolt hitting the market, it's, it's really a big deal. Yeah. It, it is definitely a big deal, and frankly, I don't think General Motors would have done it had Tesla not really done what it did with the Model S and produce mm. a car that, for the first time, was a fully practical, good-looking, 
high-performing, desirable battery electric vehicle with very, very few compromises. Mm-hmm. Tesla has built an amazing brand. GM in 2013, once the Model S started to come on the market and was clear that it was a serious vehicle, and they started selling a bunch of them in California, in one of in Silicon Valley and places like that, one of the most forward-looking and desirable markets. GM convened a, a panel at board level and looked seriously at the question of whether Tesla and what it was doing posed a threat to GM and its ongoing business. And the guess is that the conclusion was, in some ways, yes, they did. Because if you look at the Bolt EV, it was announced uh, in January 2015 by CEO Mary Barra, and the first ones were delivered less than two years later. Um, That is quick by any standards. (laughs) It ended up being a dedicated platform. It is not, in fact, an adapted Chevy Sonic, which is where it started out. But I spent a lot of time talking to the engineers they ended up having to re-engineer so much of it that there are virtually no shared components aside from things like a few suspension parts. Wow. The stuff you don't see. Right. Um, so they, GM has created a platform for battery electric vehicles that's a dedicated architecture. Um, there will almost surely be more vehicles on that. And they did it really quickly, in part, I think, to beat the Model 3 to market. So there are really three cars that we're watching. One is the Bolt EV, which made it first to market, 238 miles of range. It's an upright five-door hatchback. Then you have the Model 3, which we know is a somewhat sleeker four-door sedan. Uh, Tesla has said it will have 215 miles of range and will start at a price of $35,000. And then the third one is the next-generation Nissan Leaf, about which Nissan has been exceptionally quiet. We pretty much had expected it by now, but unlike the first-generation Chevy Volt with a V, which got a five-year product life and then replaced, the Leaf has had a full seven-year product cycle, and mm-hmm. honestly, mm-hmm. it's it's long in the tooth now. Um, there is clearly going to be a second-generation Leaf, and I wouldn't be surprised if one of the reasons it's lagged a little bit is because with the announcement of the Bolt EV two years ago, all of a sudden Nissan realized it had to have a 200-plus mile version of the next Leaf to be competitive. The thinking, based on talking to their product chief close to three years ago now, had been that they might have a version that had 110 miles, maybe a version of 125, maybe one with 150. And they thought that would cover the range, two or three versions. Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, the bar's been lifted and they had to have a 200 mile version i think those three cars sometime in 2018 are going to form a fascinating comparison the -hmm. challenge of course for tesla is that that company has not to date met any of its initially announced production dates so the question is we've not really seen spy photos of model 3s testing in large numbers thus far which is a little surprising if the car is in fact going to start rolling out the factory doors in six to nine months. But the question beyond that is, even if they meet their deadline and get some out the door in December this year, is it more than a few hundred going to Tesla board members and friends of Tesla? When does the real sort of high volume production ramp start? 
And we surveyed uh, readers. They seem to think that bets are sometime middle of next year. But we will find out. Nonetheless, a year from now is going to be fascinating because we'll probably know what the next Nissan Leaf is. The Model 3 will be either in production or imminent. And the Bolt EV will have a year of sales under its belt. Okay. And just to recap, I guess then you are saying that the Chevy Bolt with the B is a response to the Model 3 because, you know, we knew Tesla's business plan going forward was, you know, to get the cars out there, fast, sexy cars, and disprove all the myths about EVs with the luxury cars. And then there was the idea of doing the more consumer-based type model. So that's been known for a long time. And Chevy, it was on their radar. Is, Is this what you're saying, Chevy? It was on their radar. And then when they saw that it was serious and that uh, Tesla was surviving, going to survive, they went full steam ahead on the Bolt project. I, I surmise that is the case. Certainly no one from General Motors has looked at me and said, yes, John, GM thinks Tesla is a threat. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> but um, based on their actions, the emergence of a car with a range comparable to that of the Model S in its early days at half the price, GM has huge financial resources that Tesla does not have. Right. The exception of two individual quarters, Tesla's never made a profit in more than 10 years of operation. Mm -hmm. So GM may want to compete using its strengths. And, you know, the folks in GM justifiably are very proud of what they did with the EV1, even if uh, that program ended in a rather spectacularly publicized and awkward way uh, <laughs> very awkward they have a lot of they have a lot of experience in plug-in electric cars in the company although it is not clear that they know particularly how to market them but they have good technology there the bolt ev is a is a very good car i should point out by the way i didn't personally buy one we've published an article on green car reports buy an early buyer, but that wasn't actually me. Oh, okay. I thought you indicated that you later got one. <laughs> okay. No, I uh, I drove 104 different cars last year. So oh. our our yeah. household car, which gets all of 2,000 miles a year, is 17 years old. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Well, I mean, it is interesting, especially the design of the platform of the Bolt with the B is that it's you know slightly more range than the Model 3, and then it's also a hatchback, which is interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit more about your review. And, you know, we're going to go a little bit long in this episode. I hope that's okay for you because uh, you've yeah, got so much information that you can tell us uh, since you've also driven the thing. Two things you say that it really actually hits its uh, estimated range of 240 miles is more like on the minimum side side of its range. If you you know start hypermiling it, I guess you can get well over that, huh? I would think so. Um, we sort of have a policy at Green Car Reports that we do not, in general, hypermile. Uh, um, we drive cars as normal cars. people drive them. Mm-hmm. Um, I was amused, actually. So at any given car event, it's sort of, ah, oh, Mr. Volker, you know, the seat for the green communist is over here. Um, <laughs> but I went on this early bolt drive, and I got less range out of the car than the other three journalists, including guys from Road and & Track and, I think, <laughs> Motor Trend. 
Um, and I'm sort of looking at them, and they were looking at me, sort of, well, what did you do with the car? And they said, well, you know, we kept it to about 70 or 71 miles an hour. And I looked at them, I said, why? The Fourier traffic was moving at 85 miles an hour. Didn't you want to keep up? And they're like, well, it's an electric car. <laughs> like, no, 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 boys. Come on, come on. <laughs> Drive the car like normal people drive it. And I did get the 240 miles on the nose. Some of them got over 250. So... For me, because I've only really spent about 36 hours at a clip with the Tesla, the amazing thing about the Bolt is get in it and you just don't even think about range for five hours, right? It just doesn't even cross your mind. Mm. And That's a big difference. That, I think, yeah. And I've, I've driven lots of Leafs and I think I've driven every battery electric car on the market, starting with the poor old Mitsubishi iMeave at 62 <laughs> miles. Um, and... You're always sort of just thinking about range, right? Mm -hmm. The Bolt EV, that just goes completely away. And that, I think, is transformative because it really does take away the challenge for the people who are nervous, who are worried, who want to have a buffer for emergencies, etc. You know, the old right. kid in the hospital at three in the morning thing. And the Bolt EV just deals with that. Right. Okay. And also let's talk a little bit about the one pedal driving. I had the opportunity to drive an I3, test drive an I3, and I was just floored by the smoothness, you know, the creaminess, I would say, of the one pedal driving. Uh, let's talk about the Bolt. You seem to indicate that it might even be slightly better, plus it has the two modes. Let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. I'm a big fan of one-pedal driving, as I think many people who spend a lot of time with electric cars are. Uh, there are always going to be people who want a car that just behaves like a car with an automatic, which is fine, and the Bolt EV gives you that, too, if you want it. But in its low range, they've done a very good job of blending the braking, and you have the regen paddle on the left side of your steering wheel so that you can, in fact, increase the regeneration as you coast down to a light. Mm -hmm. So really, with a little bit of training, you can drive with almost never touching the brakes outside of emergency circumstances. And I think GM's buffering and the shapes of their curves to blend everything together are just a little gentler. The, the i3 can be a little bit abrupt. Um, both of them are very good in that respect. And I, would, I first became a fan of one-pedal driving. BMW, bless its heart, held the global i3 launch in Amsterdam. Now, I don't know if anyone listening has ever driven in Amsterdam, <laughs> but it's a very packed city that's many, many centuries old. It's laced with canals and humped bridges, and you have pedestrians and cyclists and skateboarders and cars and delivery vans, and buses, and trams, and large trucks, all very, 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 very close to each other. And it turns out Amsterdam also has horrendous rush hour traffic. Um, sorry about the siren, I'm in New York. Yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> yeah. So we got caught in this horrendous rush hour traffic in Amsterdam, and my co-driver and I looked at each other, and we sort of simultaneously realized this is the calmest most soothing car we've ever been in really awful traffic in. The one pedal driving is just sort of dip in, dip off, dip in, dip off. You're not switching feet to a brake pedal. It just 
Really? I'm a big fan, and I think the Bolt EV offers both options, which is very smart on GM's part. The i3 only really gives you that one pedal driver. Right. Well, kind of consider it uh, the difference between a high-performance driver and a low-performance driver, meaning a high-performance driver is looking well ahead of their, you know, where they're driving and what's going on. And they tend, gas car, you can drive with one pedal fairly well if you're paying attention to what's going on way up ahead of you. A low-performance driver, of course, is racing up to stoplights and taking off quickly and racing up to the next stoplight and so forth. So, Somebody that's already kind of trying one pedal in a gas car, when you get in something like an i3, it's just, it blows you away because it's, it's why is there even a brake pedal <laughs> is what I was wondering. I don't think I touched it more than twice, you know, that, to actually come to a complete stop or something in the, in the auto dealer parking lot. But anyway, so that's really cool. Why don't we move on a little bit and talk about fast charging, DC fast charging. You did a little poll. Um, could you tell us how you did that poll? It was an informal type poll, but it was pretty interesting how many people responded that DC fast charging was like really, really important. Um, very informal poll. Uh, we simply put it out on Twitter and asked our Twitter followers to weigh in on a simple four question poll. As you indicated, the results were that the folks who responded to the survey felt that the ability to fast charge an electric car was extremely important to the purchase decision and to the success of the, the car. There was some interesting discussion in our comments afterwards, though, that said, do you have any sense how many of these people actually own and drive a battery electric car on a daily basis? Mm -hmm. We didn't. And the suggestion was that people think fast charging is more important than it is until they start to learn that whatever your electric car may be, you can drive it fairly comfortably on the bulk of your daily travels and recharge overnight perfectly well. Mm -hmm. Because with a, with a car that has, let's say, 100 miles of range, which I think will become the new sort of de facto minimum very soon, with 100 miles of range, 90x percent of people can cover their daily travels in that with a comfortable margin. And so unless it's their only car and they have to drive four states away to visit grandma, fast charging may be less important for experienced EV owners than people who are not yet EV owners think it is. And frankly, I can argue both sides of that, but that was a thread of discussion that I found interesting. Well, it does say something. Of course, we don't. If we don't know the demographics of the people you polled and all that stuff, it's kind of a moot point trying to extrapolate from there. But I mean, it does kind of say something that those who do not own EVs and don't have experience with EVs that this fast charging availability could be an important um, marketing point. Absolutely, and let's be clear: we will need that fast charging network. Porsche and Audi have said, and I think to some extent I believe them, that you will only convince sort of the trailing end of gasoline car drivers to buy a battery electric car when getting a substantial recharge, the usual 80% number, can be done as quickly as a stop at a gas station, which is essentially 15 minutes, maybe 12 minutes. And that's why the Germans in particular are pursuing 
higher voltages and you know much higher kilowatt ratings in future generations of fast charging going beyond where tesla is now and really talking about the ability to recharge 80% of a very large battery pack 100 kilowatt hours or so in a large luxury vehicle within something like 15 minutes right well let's shift gears a little bit and wrap up the show. I know it's kind of early to say much with respect to how things may shake out policy-wise at the federal level. Of course, we know the incoming or the new administration is very strong on fossil energies. Could you, I mean, just kind of free think maybe (laughs) about how EV support might shake out at the local state levels and kind of contextualize that with what we might expect as far as guidance from the federal level. Uh, In the coming couple of three years, will support wane? Will it stay about the same? Or do you think it'll grow? Boy, (laughs) that would be its own show, wouldn't it? So so a handful of thoughts. Um, First, the federal incentive, the tax credit of up mm-hmm. $7,500, has a natural cap. It's 200000 for each automaker. Uh, GM and Nissan and Tesla are already roughly half the way there. And their production and sales rates are much higher now, so it will not take them another five years to go through the other half. The other makers, however... Um, might be justified in saying, hey, wait a sec, you can't give them that benefit and then yank it away again. And as at least one article has pointed out, the federal income tax credit for buying an electric car is fairly deeply embedded in the tax code. Um, So there's a process that needs to be gone through. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if it could be done by executive order, and it is not an EPA thing. As for the EPA, um, designated nominee is a man who has said he does not believe in climate science and has sued the EPA 14 times for attempting to enforce its own rules in his prior position as attorney general of Oklahoma. So I think there is, shall we say, some foreboding Certainly yesterday's news that 450 former EPA employees across the political spectrum had signed a letter saying he was manifestly the wrong person for the job Mm. um, is indicative of the deep unease uh, with Scott Pruitt as the next head of the EPA. Having sued it so many times, I am given to understand that he has a very deep understanding of how it works, what its rules are the processes and procedures it operates under so that he can probably change quite a number of things surgically uh, through rules uh, rather than simply taking a meat cleaver to large swaths. We will see. How Do you have a sense of how easy or difficult it might be to change the CAFE standards? Well, the CAFE standards are locked into 2025 But the NHTSA, which sets gas mileage rules, has not done what the EPA did for its complementary emissions rules, which is, say, the last set of them from 2022 to 2025 is just fine, and we're signing off on them. 
there's this midterm review that wasn't supposed to wind up until 2018. And remember, the EPA, which sets emissions, and NHTSA, which sets CAFE, had to work jointly because regulating carbon dioxide output as a greenhouse gas is directly proportional to fuel economy, hmm. or inversely proportional. So um, the NH- what the Obama administration got the two agencies to do was act in lockstep and get uh, the California Air Resources Board sign-off on those standards. He basically locked the three sets in a room and said, don't come out until you've got an agreement on standards. Those were the 2012 through 2017 standards, and then about 18 months later, the 2018 through 2025 standards, which had this sort of stop in the middle to say, okay, let's look at the second half of the standards. I would observe that automakers have already made the investments to meet the standards through about 2019 or 2020. They have a long capital cycle. They have to plan technologies years in advance Mm -hmm. and then spend hundreds of millions of dollars to get them into production and test it. So the automakers, while they would like some relief from the increased ramp on CAFE, have already made plans to go to about 2019 or 2020. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the context for it. I would certainly expect that there will be efforts backed by the automakers essentially to freeze CAFE where it is now or delay the rollout that was going to happen to 2025. But really, you talked about the states. The interesting question is going to be to what extent does the new administration target the EPA waiver, which has always been signed multiple times, that allows California to set its own stricter emissions standards and allows other states either to pick the national standards or California's, but no other variety. So then that would possibly be a mechanism the administration could use to kill zero emissions vehicle mandate? That's correct, because it's really the zero emissions vehicle mandate that causes the most pain for the auto industry. None of them are making money on electric cars. Um, the cars, the compliance cars that some makers have produced are actually quite good. And, you know, people by and large like them. But a handful of makers, among them Honda, Toyota, Fiat Chrysler, and Ford, have really sold only the minimum number needed to meet their ZEV requirements for California. And all four of those makers would very much like the ZEV requirements to go away forever. Well, of course, there's about 10 other, or there's a total of, what, 10 states that that have the ZEV mandate? Yes, but remember, through 2017, there's this thing called the travel provision, which allows a ZEV sold in any of the ZEV states to fulfill the requirements Mm -hmm. in all of the ZEV states. Mm -hmm. It gets much harder starting in 2018 when the Northeast states have to step up and they are not particularly ahead of the curve on that. And California starts ramping the number of ZEVs that have to be sold. 1% this year, 2% next year, 3% next year. This is, this is roughly ZEV math is incredibly complicated. I know (laughs) it's, Um, it's incredible. (laughs) You know, we're at sort of the point where the ZEV mandate is going to start to bite harder. I would anticipate at the behest of the automakers that the new administration will go after 
California's ability to set separate standards, which is really a proxy for killing the ZEV mandate. Um, I've okay. been getting statements from automakers uh, about that issue. So watch for an article coming up soon on green car reports. Okay. Whether or not they can do that, however, is going to be a fascinating battle to watch, possibly the battle to watch over the next year or two for electric car advocates, because California has already said it will be the resistance mm. to a number of the policies of the Trump administration. California has a lot of lawyers, and I expect every last one of them to fight all the way, and it may well end up in the Supreme Court. We will see. Uh, if they can't delay it two years, we'll see what happens in the 2018 elections. If they can delay it four years, we'll see what happens in the 2020 presidential election. But I think it will be a large and ugly battle if they decide to undertake that. And it'd be also kind of ironic uh, with the new administration telling the states, oh, well, no, you can't do it that way. <laughs> you know, when they're trying, you know, when their whole meme is about trying to turn control over to the states. Um, well, this would... Well, you had noticed that states' rights are only applicable in certain circumstances, had you? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, let's do the final question here. I, I put a little note here after after we talked about some of this really wonky policy stuff. So... I know there's a lot of moving targets out there. We're completely uncharted waters with what's going on as the new administration, you know, builds its cabinet and shakes, you know, puts in all the different secretaries and so forth. Um, do you think that EVs will hit an inflection point somewhere and continue to grow in the market without meaningful tax incentives or rebates? Yes, but I think the growth will be, I think the growth could be slower than it may otherwise have been. I mean, GM and Tesla are, are well aware that they're going to run out of rebates in within two years. They, they've known that for a long time, and they're planning accordingly. The other car makers who understand that they're sooner or later, they're going to need their own 200-mile electric cars, and we're counting on those uh, tax credits to make them much more affordable, probably will be less worried if the federal tax credit goes away, if the California's Ev requirements go away too. But I think the important thing to remember is whatever happens in the U.S., the U.S. is one of only three large markets for electric cars. The other two are China which has far tougher standards than we do and actually has a government that believes in climate science and Europe, ditto. Mm -hmm. Europe and China are not going to back down on their standards just because the U.S. seems to have a president at the moment who doesn't believe in climate science and thinks he can bring back coal, which is a mirage, uh, according to most of the experts I talk to. So, um, the global car makers understand full well that even if they get relief in the U.S., they will still need these electric cars for two other large markets. And remember, China is now by far the largest single car market in the world, much greater than the U.S. And China fully intends substantial proportions of the new cars sold in that country to be electric sooner rather than later. So, yeah, all right, you can dial back U.S. standards, GM and Ford and Volkswagen and Toyota and, you know, all the rest. Those guys still have to make viable, competitive, inexpensive electric cars for China. Mm -hmm. So to some degree, 
you know, we all sort of focus on what's happening in our own country. But if you look at the industry as a global industry, which is what it is, sure, they can sell more more trucks uh, in the U.S., more SUVs, fine. They still need to be able to design and engineer and test and sell reliable, high-volume electric cars in other places in the world. Good, good point. Well, that's a good positive note to, to end the show on. Thank you so much, John. My pleasure. As you know, I can talk about this stuff till the audience falls asleep or your microphone rusts. (laughs) Well, and we can all keep up with John at greencarreports.com, your ultimate guide to cleaner, greener driving. Once again, that's greencarreports.com. Thanks so much, John. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. This has been another edition of the Plug in America show. Thanks so much for listening. And please help us get the word out about Plug in America and EVs by pointing your friends and family to the Plug in America website at pluginamerica.org. There you'll find a wealth of information about EVs, our plug-in vehicle tracker that tells you what EVs are available, what's coming and when, a blog, information about EV chargers and public charging, multimedia content, promotional materials, and much more. And, of course, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for us there. If you'd like to find out more about me, my name is Bob Tregillis, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter as well. And please remember, Plug in America is a non-profit electric vehicle advocacy group, and our work is supported by your generous donations. Please consider donating by visiting pluginamerica.org today, and we appreciate your kind support. Thanks to Angle Gord, whose music was used here by permission. And until next time, remember, at Plug in America, we drive electric, and you can too.